0: Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences and to inspire you. One of the reasons I started this podcast was to explore creativity and curiosity in all its forms, including those we don't tend to think of as creative, because I'm pretty sure there's very little in this world that doesn't qualify. My guest today is a great example of that very belief. I was thrilled recently to be heading to a Doctor Who convention and have the opportunity to meet up with Robert Smith, a mathematician and fellow fan who not only uses mathematical models to help improve disease management, but who also gained some unexpected fame for modeling zombie outbreaks. The convention was canceled, but Robert was kind enough to talk to me anyway. I know math and zombies may not be what you were expecting, but I promise you won't regret sticking around to hear about just how creative math can be and how that zombie study has had actual real-world impact. And yes, we talk a little about Doctor Who, since Robert has written quite a few books about the good doctor and his adventures. I'm so very pleased to introduce you to Robert Smith. First of all, I'm really, really grateful that you're interested in talking to me. And also, um, I'm desperately curious because I will confess there's a reason why I majored in English. Uh-huh. And it's not that I could never do math. It was just that it never really resonated for me. And it certainly, I mean, to me, I still think of math as you have an equation, you get one answer, and and that's just how it always is. So I really, really want to hear what you have to say about how math is creative.
1: Right, right. Okay. Uh, so I guess I, I think of math as a language. Uh, it's a dense language, very dense language for some people. Um, and But the great thing is it has, um, inherently, it has logic and rigor. And so if you want to solve a problem, you know, you're right in some ways, right? It's like you, you have a premise, and then you lead inexorably to a conclusion. And so that conclusion is is absolutely robust. I mean, if you didn't make any math mistakes, you have you have an answer that is effectively true, even though your premise may be false. And so... You know, I may have built the wrong model or something like that, but I I have a, a, a robust system. So for me, math is a tool. Math is something that I use to study infectious diseases. So I effectively think of it as a translation. So I translate from the real world, which is noisy and messy and unpredictable, and I translate into the language of mathematics because of this access to logic and rigor. And then I can... You know have a kind of way through the darkness so I can find an answer that I probably wouldn't have been able to find or at least have such confidence in if I was just in the real world um, and then I bring it back to the real world and then I say okay now I've solved my real world problem with a real world answer I just visited Mathland to do it right and it back um, and you know and then I might say, okay is this maybe I've solved my problem, or maybe this doesn't make any sense, right? Or maybe something is not quite right. Um, and if something is not quite right, then I, say, I know exactly where the problem is. It's not in the math solution because that's a robust system. It's not translating it back to the real world because that's very easy from like my answer back to the real world. It's creating my model in the first place. And so I kind of go back to my model and say, okay, I need to think much more creatively about what is in this. And I may have ignored things that I should have you know, considered. I may have considered things in the wrong way. You know, I might have used one kind of form of the function instead of another form. And so for me, that's where I kind of start to kind of delve deeply into exactly what it is that I'm modeling here. How am I doing it? What are the different pieces? And it's a giant jigsaw puzzle to me. I'm sort of pulling all these things together and saying, okay, let's try it. And I may go around this cycle many times. Like I may say, okay, new model, analyze, conclusion, check with the data, see if this makes sense. No, maybe not. Or, you know, talk to biologists or so on. Let me retranslate again, make another model, analyze, come back to the conclusion. And and I, I do this enough times until I have a very good sense of kind of, you know, what's going on, how much do I understand, and also how much can I predict in the future? And, and for me, math is a very good tool for predicting, um, because you, you have, you know, this, this way of basically rolling stuff out that is, is very inexorable. And so I, I think for me, it's like, like, I think with my mathematicians head on, yes, of course, I'm just, you know, starting with one thing and trying to get an answer out. But with my kind of sort of scientist hat on, let's say, I'm, I'm mixing and you know matching back and forth between two things that I'm trying to match um to get the best sort of outcome I'm not trying to get a true outcome necessarily my model is probably not going to be a, a true fact it's going to be a useful description of what's going on and I hope to get insights um I, I can build a model that's absolutely accurate but I probably can't analyze that um, and so again I'm making trade-offs to try and say okay I, I will live with some assumptions or some things that I've I've ignored but it's just like making a map. Like if I you know, have a paper map, if that was one-to-one, that would be a useless map. I could not fit it in my pocket. And I don't need a map that's one-to-one because I have the real world for that. So instead, I want a map that scales down and say, okay, I need to know what's the important things. What can I leave out? You know, if I need to get home, I need to say, okay, I need to walk to the corner, turn left, you know, see McDonald's, you know, turn there, like, like the key information, not every blade of grass. And and of course, it depends on the scale of the problem. And so I guess now if you think of, say, Google Maps, right, you may zoom in or zoom out. But again, you're still trying to identify what are the key features and what do we need to put in. So, so for me, that's where it actually involves a lot of creativity um, and also a lot of discussion with people and kind of you know hashing out the model and trying to figure out exactly what are we putting in and you know, how are we doing it and so on. And, and I don't need my, my sort of biology colleagues to understand necessarily all the technical math stuff. What I need them to understand is make the model in the first place because I can go away and analyze it, but I don't always have a, the same instincts and the same experience that they do. So we can together kind of build these good models um, that you know, can kind of help, help us in the real world.
0: Can you give me an example of how you take the real world and translate it into math and back again? Yes.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so one, one of the first major projects I worked on was for um, uh, considering a HIV vaccine. So there is no vaccine for HIV. So this is a great place where math can come in. And so we said, well, what if there was one, right? And so we looked at all the vaccines in development and they all have a few things in common. And so one of the things is they're saying the vaccine probably is not going to work very well. Right. So that means that, you know, the the vaccine will sometimes protect you, but more often, in fact, quite often, it will let you get infected. But then the idea is it makes it less bad for you. So the idea is you you still, you know, sometimes you don't get HIV when you would have otherwise, but sometimes you do get it. But then it's it's less bad. So you're and that means you live longer. uh, Also, you're less likely to pass on to other people. And so we're sort of saying, OK, from this kind of premise, because that seems to be the premise of all the vaccines that they're building, um, you know, what would that mean, and so we built a model which basically incorporated those things, and so we 've now got this this idea for you know a system where we have a vaccination and so on and then what what 's the net outcome okay so let 's roll this out and see and the particular question we were concerned with is a HIV vaccine make things worse and and the answer turns out to be very clearly yes right and and mathematically, you show this and you say, okay, right, now is our task to figure out does this make sense or not right so we've just shown that the vaccine is going to make things worse. And because you tell people to say, well, but surely that seems backwards. Yeah, (laughs) People think a vaccine is good. And then you start to realize, okay, well, what factors are going into this? And one thing you realize is that if people are living longer with the disease, which is a great outcome that you want, well, now they're just alive longer to have more sex partners, to share more needles and so on. Um, And so they can just spread HIV Uh. by by existing for longer. And so, okay, we do want them to exist for longer. That's good. And then you figure out trade-offs and said, okay, we, we can, allow that, and that that is exactly what we want, of course, Um, but the trade-off is you need to lower the viral load. And so there's there's effectively an individual-based concern, which is the person with HIV wants to live as long as possible, and then there's a group concern, which is you want less HIV in the community. And so if you can lower the, the amount of virus sufficiently, Well, that it helps for long life, but it also helps for reducing the transmission. Um, And these two are not quite so one-to-one. So what you want to do is design vaccines that will lower the transmission, and we can precisely quantify how much um, for years of life saved. And we can say, for every year of life saved, here is how much transmission need to lower by. And and if you're going to release a vaccine that only gave you extra life, but didn't reduce the transmission, that's going to be a bad vaccine. So, of course, you want years of life, but you also want less HIV all over. Um, And so that was sort of part one. And then we went to part two, which said, okay, the obvious problem with the HIV vaccine is a lot of people are going to say, hooray, I never have to use a condom again. I can share all the needles I want. I'm going to be very risky. And if this goes up, then you have a huge problem, right? Because now we have this vaccine that doesn't work that well. And yet lots of people who either got the vaccine are going to be going crazy, or possibly people who didn't get the vaccine are going to be going crazy because they say, oh, well, people are vaccinated out there. So my risk has probably gone down. Or maybe it's the opposite, right? Maybe the vaccinated people who have access to the medical system, you give them literature and really, you know, push this message of this is not a cure-all and so on. You need to still, you know, wear condoms and, you know, reduce your risk behavior. Maybe they do reduce your risk behavior because they've had the vaccine. And the people who haven't, maybe they reduce because they didn't get the vaccine or maybe they increase. And the honest truth is you don't know. You have no way of knowing what people are going to be doing. And people are really hard to model. So the great thing about mathematics is you can do all options at once. And so we said, well, what if the vaccinated go up? What if they go down? What if the risky behavior goes up or down in the unvaccinated? And then we showed, actually, it's the unvaccinated who are driving this. What the unvaccinated do really makes a big difference. If the unvaccinated reduce their risky behavior, well, the obvious thing, if that was really always true, is don't vaccinate anyone, right? If everyone's not vaccinated and they're, they're reducing their behavior, you've just made things better. But that's obviously not very likely. That's kind of the propaganda vaccine, <laughs> And so, you know, it's say, like, hey, this a great vaccine, but you'd better be better if you don't have it. You know, um, you know some people may do that, but that's probably not the case. Uh, but assuming you actually have a vaccine, then it's still, it still matters a lot. So what whether the vaccinated increase or decrease, you just get a sort of slight change in the system. But if the unvaccinated increase or decrease, then you have a massive change in strategy. And so it's really interesting because it says like, OK, the, the people who are going to be driving this are the very people you don't have contact with. So we need to call in the social scientists now because we need to understand what people are actually going to do with an HIV vaccine, even if they don't actually get it, right? And so you need to sort of understand human behavior and how people are going to react and so on. And so it leads you down this garden path, but to all kinds of interesting stuff that I think for me, anyway, draws together, you know, kind of the biology, the mathematics, you know, the social science, you start to pull all this stuff together and think of it as kind of a global problem. And it just started from a simple, what if there's a vaccine? What then? And all this stuff rolls out. But I think math gives you a really nice idea of seeing what are the all the possibilities because you can look at them all at once.
0: Yeah. I mean, that actually, I mean, just hearing you describe it, not actually being involved in the process, which I'm sure took a lot of yes. time, sounds a bit overwhelming. But it, I'm also fascinated by the fact that it seems to get into everything. It's like it's going well beyond the question of all of the biological factors.
1: Yes, Yes exactly and, and I, I'm very much one for kind of a holistic approach to disease I, I I teach a disease modeling course where some of it is learning the biology, some of it is making models using mathematics and analyzing them, and some of it is you know class discussions about the ethics of you know disease control which are absolutely fascinating and all this stuff that pops up and you know people writing essays on you know ethical issues and, and giving presentations and so on um, because I feel it's very important to treat scientists you know like with with this kind of sort of you know like understanding that that these problems are not just limited to science. Like you're going to have knock on effects, you know, and you could invent this great, you know, scientific thing. And if it turns out to be a super weapon, that's going to wipe out humanity. Maybe you should think about that. And Maybe you should examine the consequences and so on. And so many scientists are not interested in that at all. And I've had lots of conversations with people um, and talking about stuff and they're like, well, we don't care. We just want, you know, grant money. And we just want to like win a Nobel prize for inventing something new. And so I'm like, okay, but you also have to think about the consequences of your actions. And I think that is something that has not really been done that much. And I think a part of the problem is just this polarization of, of topics. You know, there are people who are math people and they don't write essays. And there are people who are social science type people who don't do math. And, and you know, these groups have grown further apart over the years. And I think we need to bring them back together because to solve any actual problems of the world, you need everyone, right? You need everybody's skills kind of working in tandem, not making these artificial divisions.
0: Yeah, I agree. And actually, so you've brought to mind two things, one of which is that when I was reading one of your articles in the bio that mentioned chaos theory, I, of course, immediately, being who I am, thought of Ian Malcolm. And what you just said also reminded me of, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, but I I also wondered, because you do have a fairly varied background and interest set you know here at least there is such an emphasis now on stem and it's it's like we're divorcing all of the science and engineering and math from the arts and then sometimes people talk about steam so they include the arts which then i'm Mm -hmm. like well you've basically got everything then so (laughs) you know what's what's the (laughs) distinction but you know i i'm curious to know what what your experience is with that because it sounds to me like you might agree with me that we probably need to keep things together more.
1: Yeah. I I mean, one of the funny things actually is that mathematics used to not be a science. Mathematics was an art. It was like philosophy. It was, it was the study of kind of, you know, purity and sort of deep thought and so on. And, and math used to be in sort of, you know, arts departments and it kind of, you know, over many, many generations kind of drifted over to science. And now we sort of say, oh, it's useful for physics and things like that. And that's also true. But I think mathematics is one that actually can do all kinds of things. And so, you know, It happens to have landed in in science, and so now we sort of have STEM. And I I sort of understand why there's a big push on STEM. I think that, you know, science is under incredible assault at the moment. True. um, That, you know, it's it's very easy to kind of, you know, paint scientists as villains, as many, many movies do. Um, I think a lot of this comes out of sort of, you know, Second World War stuff and sort of, you know, Nazi experimentation and stuff. And the idea that, you know, there are people smarter than you who are, you know, potentially making experiments that you know nothing about and can't understand is a very terrifying idea to most people. And so that pushes people away. And then you kind of, you know, the, the boot on the throat of this is, of course, it's, you know, very easy for governments and, you know, sort of, you know, special interests and so on to kind of say, oh, those wacky scientists, like, you know, they're all trying to do wacky things and, you know, like, and we don't believe any of it. And, you know, like you can easily sow the seeds of doubt for climate change or all sorts of things, you know, and and of course, science is not one of those, you know, let's just have an answer and it's it, right? It's the science is about kind of the discussion and about throwing more and more questions at something. So it's very easy to hijack that and just say like, oh, okay, well, you know, the scientists don't agree anyway. So. So do whatever the hell you want because, you know, but actually that's not the right approach, right? The right approach is like, you know, yes, people disagree. That doesn't mean there is no, you know, better answer or less, you know, less good answer or something. Um, And it also doesn't mean that certain things aren't going to happen, you know, just because you don't really know the ultimate single answer. Like it's not a binary, but it doesn't mean it's not useful.
0: Definitely. I I had not realized that math used to be an art.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. It still is in some places, actually. And some some universities will still have math not in the science departments, um, sort of for historical reasons.
0: Wow. I mean, I I also read your article about all of your tattoos. So obviously, having, you know, um, actually, I should probably let you explain that briefly.
1: (laughs) Yes, yeah, so so I, um, you know, in the last couple, maybe three, four years or so, um, I've been tattooing myself with kind of, you know, clunky designs. And so um, there's great mathematical images. So I have the, the Mandelbrot set, which is to me a very visually resting one. It's from Chaos Theory. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a little bit sort of, you know, in the weeds to describe. It's, it's sort of the, it's a set of like kind of constants where a, a very simple iterative map kind of converges. Uh, which doesn't sound that intuitive. But if you Google Mandelbrot set, you see really funky pictures. And this, this actually encapsulates something really cool about math that I think that, you know, you don't need to understand everything about math to kind of get cool stuff out of it. And we certainly do this in other fields, like in physics, you know, most people, you know, are very interested in things like, you know, black holes or quarks or Higgs bosons and so on, you know, we can all be like, oh, that sounds really exciting without having any particular idea of how we actually go and find these or understand them. And, you know, we're not going to read the equations and so on. We're just going to go, oh, cool. You know, and so, you know, I don't, I don't see why math can't be the same, actually. I think that math can be just as fascinating and just as exciting to, you know, many more people than it is who don't need to go and look at equations. Um, And they sometimes liken, you know, math teaching to like, you know, learning the guitar where you never pick up a guitar, right? And so you're just learning theory, theory, theory. And you say, well, this is very boring. And of course it would be boring, right? And then eventually somebody hands you a guitar and you go, okay, now I know how to play it because I've learned the theory. But that is not how most people (laughs) learn the guitar, right? You you know, noodling around, doing stuff. And I think we should be doing more of this. We should be kind of saying, okay, let's have fun with math and let's figure that out and then inspire questions that way. Um, this is part of what I was trying to do with sort of my, my zombie stuff, was kind of reach people in a different way, reach them in a place that wasn't the traditional kind of math stuff and say, okay, let's go find out where people actually are and, and meet them there. Um, and so so I'm a big proponent of that. And I think the tattoos have kind of brought me to a place where you know I can do fun explanations of math. I mean, I have a uh, like period doubling route to chaos uh, diagram on my arm. So lots of people see that and they're sort of like, what's that interesting design there? And then you start explaining and they sort of, you know, at first they realize, oh, oh, I've gotten trapped in a math conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not using any equations and you can talk about, you know, your heartbeat is in a double beat and that it, it sometimes bifurcates into a four beat and an eight beat and the 16 beat. And that's called a heart attack. And you really don't want that. And so you might change some underlying parameters, like with a defibrillator, move back to a two beat. And people can sort of go, yeah, okay, okay, all right. I I kind of get what you're talking about. I have a heart too, you know. Connection, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he didn't throw any equations at me, so I guess I'm a I'm a survivor. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> didn't kill me. I guess we can we can
0: go on to the next one. <laughs> so, so the, those of us who aren't mathematicians are math survivors, are we? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> but I think I think there's a lot of kind of you know trauma around math actually um that you know you talk to people and people either say oh I used to love math and I did up to high school or wherever it was they stopped you know and that was cool but there's a large group of people who are very proud of their math ignorance They're like oh I'm terrible at mathematics and you know oh I'm no good at that and and you sort of think like if this were you know reading or something people don't like, oh I can't read oh no That's no no true. I true and, and it's funny that it's so socially acceptable to be, you know, proudly displaying your ignorance and, and you know, but I get it too. I'm also like, yeah, I, this is a very dense subject. I was teaching a workshop for um, a public health agency of Canada, which is like the CDC of Canada, respectively. And we invited all these, you know, very eminent people, you know, they like do policy decisions and so on about, you know, health stuff all across Canada. And, and they came and we were giving like a two week workshop and a bunch of people literally fled the room on day one because they saw equations. And, and their boss was like, you get back in here because this is a serious workshop and we have to do this. And they were running from the room saying, you can fire me if you want. I am not going back in there. Wow. And so you think, how do you reach people who are so terrified of, of equations that they're going to, you know, literally risk their job? Um, and I actually went to a follow-up some months later and, and people were talking about this and they, they were literally using the word, you know, I'm a survivor, like, because I was at their workshop and, oh my God, there, were, there was math. And of course, all the math side, we tried to keep it as simple as we reasonably could, mm-hmm. and and actually, in the end, was quite successful, and we got a lot of good stuff out of it. But it's a really hard one. It's a hard kind of you know hump to get over um, because people have this sort of inbuilt trauma from you know high school or whatever, which you know is usually not taught very well um, and engages only a very small segment, and really, really, really frightens the, the the vast majority of people. I think.
0: Yeah, my my dad's best friend was a terrible math student had a very very hard time with it and god bless him he went out and became a math teacher so that he could help kids yeah. who had trouble just oh, like he it, did yeah. so oh, exactly. he probably that's was true. one of the good ones yeah. but yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah most right. of us yeah
1: the good ones are there but they're they're not every. yeah most of mm-hmm. us didn't
0: have that kind of teacher yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: so since you mentioned the zombies
1: yes do tell <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, so uh, I, I I was teaching my very holistic disease modeling course and you know, so students have learned all kinds of things about disease and I gave them a project and it said, you know, make a make a mathematical model of any disease you like. And so, you know, illustrate all the math techniques that we've been learning, but you know, pick pick your favorite disease. And people did HIV, malaria, whatever, and tropical diseases and all kinds of things. And one group did zombies, and I, you know, I immediately thought this is amazing for the class. Like my vision was very small. My vision was like, oh, this will make a great class presentation. So I just sort of got my educator hat on thinking, Uh, That'll really help the other students, Um, and and the students who came to me, they 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 said later, they they thought we we thought you would never go for it. They thought, you know, (laughs) there's no way our professor is going to let us do zombies. But because I was a science fiction person, I'm like, bring it on. This is amazing. Um, And I and I think I really digressed this this idea of the education part of it. Um, And I didn't see how big it was going to get, but I I I love the idea that you could sort of you know take a fun approach. Um, the good thing about zombies is, of course, they'd never been a zombie model before, um, because why? <laughs> and, and then, um, but, you know, new diseases come along all the time. And so the zombies illustrated the process. And the process is you have to go back to the biology, in this case, you know, video games and movies, but, you know, you go back to sort of what there is, and you kind of invent the, the model from that. And, and a lot of times, this is, this is done backwards, a lot of people kind of come up with some model and then kind of shop it around and kind of have a very poor fit to the biology. And I've always maintained you have to do it properly. You have to go back to first principles, figure out what problem you're trying to solve. You know what application are you doing? Write down the equations that, that come from it naturally. And so there are of course things in the zombie model that you know don't appear in any other model. So for example, you know the dead don't come back to life <laughs> in any. Way. Thank goodness. Uh, Sometimes the dead are a factor. So they're a factor in Ebola. So so dead bodies can still infect you. So actually we learned some things from zombies that are actually useful in the real world. Uh, uh, But another factor is you don't generally kill anyone who's infected. I mean, you know, you may sort of want to or something, but, you know, you you don't go and execute people with the flu. You try and help them. But with zombies, you're just trying to take them out. And so it's a very different approach. So there are some, you know, massive differences. But on the other hand, there are many similarities. Of course, there's there's people who are infectious who are going to infect you if you don't protect yourself in some way. And, and you know, people will, you know, die of natural causes along the way. Babies might be born. There's there's all kinds of stuff kind of going on. Um, And those things you can import from other models. And so you, you kind of make these models and... I guess the funny thing that happened was, well, shortly after the zombie stuff, swine flu came along, and we had to do exactly that. And we had to basically say, okay, nobody does anything about swine flu. Let's figure out the biology. Let's make a mathematical model. Let's like try and and it was only a few months later, and all the stuff that had been done with zombies was a very good illustration of like this is how this works. And and so you know, like. And, actually there's been a few cases where stuff that we learned from doing the zombie modeling was actually helpful in other diseases. So one, one is the Ebola situation. Another one is because we were having, um, you know, there's the infection term and then it's the killing the infected people term. So these two complicated terms, um, and people had always said, oh, you can't put in two very complicated terms. It just makes the models too hard. And we were doing a model of uh, HPV, so human papillomavirus. And we we're dealing with sort of heterosexual transmission, but also homosexual transmission. And people said, oh, but that's going to involve these two complicated terms. And I was like, wait, I've done this before. I know what I'm doing here. <laughs> the zombies, they were like, no, are the zombies going to help us with a real problem? <laughs> like, this is amazing. And, and it you know, gave us mathematical insights as well. So, so it was kind of fun stuff. And, and it's very interesting. It, it went viral which I was astonished by. And I was sort of like, oh, right, I guess it's riding on the back of zombies, which are a fun kind of, you know, like, you know, thought experiment, really. Uh, But also, you know, everybody has an investment in zombies somehow. Like my my mother knows what zombies are. She's never seen a zombie movie. You know, people zombie-proof their houses. And you kind of, at the end of the day, it's just, it's a fun game. If you want to zombie-proof your house, go right ahead, right? On the other hand, you know, if there is a pandemic or something or an earthquake or whatever, if you have a lot of tin food in your basement, maybe that's not such a bad thing, right? And the CDC got on this too, and they, they came up with this sort of zombie plan as well. I was actually visiting the wow. CDC at the time <laughs> because they said, well, this is, you know, people might actually listen to this one, even though it's zombies, which you would think people would be less inclined to, but actually they're more inclined to. I think because you can play a thought experiment in, in a way that like thinking about, you know, an Ebola outbreak is kind of a bit too close to home. Let's worry about that if and when it happens. But zombies, oh, we can always be ready for those. Um, and so, so I think that same education idea of kind of, you know, for me, educating the rest of my class, it just extended outward. And people were, a lot of people were very surprised to know that there was even such a thing as disease modelling. Um, people said, I didn't know you could use mathematics to study diseases. This is amazing. Um, and a lot of people, I found out later, actually went into the field of disease modelling because of zombies. They were like, this is amazing. This is what I want to do with my life. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> but, this is amazing, yeah, yeah. So it really, it really touched a lot of people, really inspired a lot of people. Um, it was also interesting to watch it spread through the media uh, because I'd actually done some work on looking at the effect of the media on diseases. Um, so I looked at media and influenza, and so I sort of thought, well, I might as well look at media and zombies. And I also tracked my own data because I was like watching my own story <laughs> fly through the media. And I kept Twitter data, and like, you know, Google News data you can find, all sorts of things. And I actually wrote a model of the spread of the, the zombie story through the media. Because it went viral and I do viruses. So I was like, oh, why not? Let's let's make this very better.
0: Well, that's cool. <laughs> I have to think that the novelty value of zombies probably got a lot of people's attention too. That you know that's... It did, yes.
1: Yes. And I, I think marrying two very unexpected things like zombies and math, just you know, nobody thought those would go together at all. Right. And Actually, what's funny is there's a lot of zombie models out there now. Like, like I feel like we kind of accidentally invented this, this sub- sort of, you know, discipline of zombie modeling, and you get them turning up all the time, and they're sometimes very handy and very interesting and, you know, have neat mathematical sort of things going on. So it's, yeah, It, I mean, every time I think this project is dead, it comes back to life. And that then I'm like, oh, wait a
0: minute.
1: <laughs> <laughs> So when
0: you're doing something like that with, you know, zombies that, you know, something that doesn't exist, how do you know that you got your model right?
1: Ah, very good question. Um, I I think the same way we know with anything, um, which is that you kind of, you know, you, you, you can sort of parameterize your model based on some things and then you check it against other things. So it might be that you have, you know, data about some disease right now and then you make a model and then maybe you leave off some of the data and you see if the model predicts the data that that you didn't include. And so then you get a good sense of if if this makes sense or you just make your model now and you see what happens as more data comes in later. Um, But you do the same thing for the zombies. You can make it based on, you know, some movies and some video games and then test it against other ones. Um, And that's basically what we did. And I kept sending my students off to watch more video games (laughs) and do things. (laughs) I mean, the fact that I had a kind of, you know, pop culture kind of sensibility really helped because, you know, like they came and said, we've got their model and, you know, like here's the thing. And I just said, you know, this thing happens in Shaun of the Dead and, you know, you haven't included it. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And so that's something that, you know, I had because I, I'm just, I'm a sci-fi person, you know, horror fan, zombie person, you know, like like I wasn't I wasn't a pre-existing zombie person per se, but I'd watched enough movies mm-hmm. and so it was very natural to kind of absorb. Um, and so I think having that background had, you know, made made a big difference actually.
0: Man. I'm I'm just imagining being the student being told, go watch another movie. Yeah. It
1: was quite funny because they sort of slunk out of the office like, oh, okay, okay, I guess we've got homework to do.
0: <laughs> but of all the homework you could have, yes, exactly. it'd be like if you said to me, you know, go watch these four episodes of Doctor Who and come back and tell me what yeah. you learned, I'd be like, okay.
1: Yeah, if I must. <laughs>
0: I don't think I'd argue with that in the slightest. Yes. <laughs> so, how did you end up? You know, if we if we kind of go back in time, how did you come to discover what you love about math in the first place? Oh, that's a very good question.
1: Um, so, I think actually a large part of it was Doctor Who. So I was a Doctor Who fan since I was, you know, five years old. My father had been a fan of, he was actually a fan of William Hartnell. And so he just watched everything William Hartnell was in, including Doctor Who back in the day. Cool. And then because he had watched Doctor Who, he was kind of watching it again. And I was, you know, watching a John Pertwee episode and just was, was blown away. Like I, I was watching The Green Death <laughs> and you know, I'm sort of watching I'm like, wow, there's maggots and soldiers. And I'm kind of like, no, 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 no. I, I you know, I, I, can't, I can't watch this new show. I'm five years old. And I'm like, no, I'm overcommitted. I've too <laughs> many shows. And so I went back to my room and then I came out again. I thought, I might just peek around. And then I saw the thing that made all the difference, the giant fly. And I'm like five years old going, I have never seen anything so amazing. So I am hooked. And so for me, I'm, I'm, you know, now this Doctor Who fan, like, you know, and kind of, you know, like, I guess I was smart and I was, you know, kind of a nerd and everything. And it was not cool to be a nerd back then. Um, But actually Logopolis, Tom Baker's last Mm -hmm. story, um, was all about mathematicians, sort of, Modeling the universe and kind of sustaining it, and basically, you know, through mathematics comes ultimate power. And I thought, I'll have some of that. <laughs> <help."> <laughs>
0: That's funny because I, I had just thought of Legopolis right before you said it.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. I think you so, can model the universe? Yeah, and I, think, I think the character of the Doctor as well. This kind of you know flamboyant scientist. I was like, oh, I like this, and and you know, he's very smart, but he's also not just smart. Like, Mm -hmm. and, and it's funny because there's a lot of critiques of science. Right. And, and so, you know, and the doctor's often critiquing very short-sighted scientists. Um, you look in like Planet of Evil or something and he basically talks his guy into committing suicide because of like scientific ethics. And the guy's like, yeah, okay, fair enough. You're right. I, I I pushed the boundaries of science and I wasn't ready. I'll go kill myself. Fair enough. You know, and it's only because the monster takes him over that this doesn't happen. Like he's ready. He presses eject. He's ready to Mm -hmm. go. Um, I'm like, this is very odd for a very science-led show to kind of be like, it's not rah-rah-rah scientists. It's like a particular kind of scientist. And I think I just absorbed that into my DNA. I was just like, yes, right. Science is an amazing thing, also has potential for misuse. And it's not just a science. And and I think also, you know, particularly Tom Baker, you sort of see, you know, like when he meets Romana, for instance, you know, and she's way more qualified than he is. And he's also like, yeah. There's also empirical stuff too, and experience and things, and just kind of having instincts for things and so on. And I feel like I drew in a lot of this stuff actually. And so, so for me, that was that was very big. Um, and so when I, you know, sort of rose through the, you know, system and then and then eventually became like a professor, I was like, oh, I this is like a duck to water here. Um, and my job is basically to be an international superstar. And I'm like, <laughs> cool. I've trained for this my whole life.
0: <laughs> I watched The Doctor. I have this down. <laughs> You know, that's exactly. and,
1: I, and I travel all the time and I feel like yep yep you know I don't have a TARDIS but I have the next best thing you know I'm all over the world I mean diseases are everywhere and you know I have expertise I you know I was in Cameroon like you know a week and a half ago I'm um, heading to uh, Namibia like you know next month I'm going to be in Nepal later in the year like you know I've in like you know, Malaysia, the Philippines, India, Russia, like you know, all in the last couple of months, I, I you know, I'm, I'm all over, and I kind of feel like this is not unlike Doctor Who. I didn't quite yeah. imagine just how be in some ways, and you kind of, you know, dash around the world putting out fires, and you know, that's kind of cool, and meeting people, and you know, making friends, and you know, trying to make the world a bit better.
0: Well, I wouldn't have thought of and and I've Shouldn't even say this, I feel like, because everything that you've been talking about is stuff that I wouldn't have thought of a mathematician doing. But, you know, the idea that that you are going all around the world, to I mean, are, are you gathering data that you end up using or are you doing something more practical while you're there to help out in a given situation or how, do, how does that work?
1: Well, I'd say it, it varies a lot. Um, so, for example, I went to Chile in November uh, because I was at a math conference in Australia and I was having a five-minute conversation with somebody who I'd vaguely met once before and she was just sort of announcing to a group and she said, oh, I've got, I've got two problems. She's like, my first problem is I have, you know, I, I'm not really an applied mathematician. I have all this data from the Chilean government who who collect all this data, but they don't do anything with it. So it's all sitting there waiting to be analyzed. So I need somebody who's an expert in in understanding data, creating models, you know, applying them to policy and developing recommendations. And specifically, we were looking at rotavirus because there's a vaccine in, in North America and various places, but there's no vaccine in Chile. And they were like, should we introduce a vaccine? And so basically, look at the data, see what happens and so on, make recommendations. And I was sort of thinking like, this is my name on it. So I was like, oh, oh, you need someone? I, I could do that. And then she said, my other problem is I have all this grant money to spend and it has to be spent by this certain date and I need someone to come to I was like, I'm there. <laughs> like, this is... <laughs> yeah, and so, so then you go there and then, you know, of course the data is in Spanish, which I don't speak, but you know, so you've got someone local who can kind of translate. So yes, you try to understand the data and we, we developed a model. Well, you know, first you developed a model that was a very standard model and we sort of went, great, we've got something. And then she said, you know, this just feels like every other model. And I'm like, you're right, this is every other model. And then we threw that away and came up with really innovative stuff. And I was like, oh, this would not have happened, except that we were sitting side by side and just like, as you like chewing the fat and just saying, yeah, but we could do better, surely. And we came up with really, really interesting stuff. Uh, we then met with like local public health people who like, you know, like came to the meetings, some of whom had math background and some of whom didn't. And so, you know, again, you need to be able to talk to these people. And I have a big background in doing that. Um, I've, I've been in departments where I was the only mathematician. Um, I've worked with doctors who, you know, don't don't understand the equations and kind of don't want to and don't have the time to. And you, ha- you have to learn how to speak the language and stuff. So because I have all these skills together, these, these are really handy. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's basically sort of working with people. So it's a mixture of kind of, yes, you know, grabbing data that's there, working with people who are local, um, you know, coming up with innovative ideas and then communicating those ideas in the right way to the right people. Um, and, I, yeah, I do I
0: do a lot of this stuff. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it must be the kind of thing where you know, you can't go for too many days without feeling like I'm doing something really valuable in the world. I mean, it's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: And and I sort of feel like I, you know, I got the golden ticket and the, yeah. <laughs> the Willie Wonka competition. And so yeah, I'm I'm definitely. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm very much a proponent of like public good. Like I think that you know, I, I mean, I guess you know, I grew up I grew up very working class, and so I didn't have any. Academic background at all, and I had to figure it all out myself. Uh, And I think that's a piece of it. It felt like we're all in it together back then. And I feel like now, both probably sort of you know having jumped the class barrier a bit, and also you know kind of you know in a different time, there's a lot more individualism, right? And people are sort of like, oh, we need to you know like it's everyone for themselves, and and you see all kinds of issues with like you know anti-vaccination movements and so on, um, kind of pushing against that. Whereas I feel like sort of you know after the Second World War, say everybody was community minded. Everyone was like, we need to solve these problems together. Let's embed healthcare almost everywhere in the world. And let's, you know, like, you know, solve problems and let's, you know, have social safety net and all kinds of things. And we've kind of had a long time since we've had any real serious existential threat to societies. Um, Despite whatever the, you know, you might read in the news that just hasn't happened. Like we don't watch like, you know, three fifths of our friends just get killed. right? Right. It's like, you know, bread of that, but there's not the actuality of it. Right. And so we haven't had this kind of massive societal need to kind of band together and do stuff. And I think this is a real shame in a lot of ways Because, I mean, I don't think we should be having three-fifths of us dying, but we could still possibly do good things by by being in it together. Mm -hmm. And that is just not how the world seems to work most of the time. well, I should say it's only at least the Western world. And so um, in a lot of developing countries, of course, that is the way because that's the only thing that people have. And so I find there's a lot more community-minded spirit in a lot of places where people are willing to be like, yeah, let's figure stuff out and let's do it all together and let's all, you know, pitch in with all our skills and, and make, make stuff better. And I feel like that's, you know, usually the way to success is because I don't have all the answers, but I have my answers and other people have theirs and you can combine and then you often make much richer things.
0: I would think so. And the... I. I... I have to think that the anti-vaccination movement must be kind of frustrating for you.
1: deeply, deeply (laughs) frustrating. But I, on the other hand, I sort of, like, there's a piece of me that kind of gets it too, right? I don't agree with it, but I I sort of, I also understand where people are coming from. Like, Like, science is kind of, you know, elevated, elevated, elevated in really innovative ways, but it's such that, you know, nobody can understand all of science, right? You know, we have to take a lot of stuff on trust. And so... That's where suddenly you know you're not doing experiments yourself, and you're probably not even able to follow many of the experiments, you know. And you're sort of seeing you know high level physics things and labs that cost millions or whatever and stuff. And you're like, yeah, okay, they're doing some weird stuff and they're making all these claims. And also, there's lots of claims that come out all the time. And I think some of it's malicious too, right? There is you know like the climate change stuff really muddied the waters around kind of science, mm-hmm. right? And this is a very deliberate kind of thing that was happening. It um, basically hijacked what happens normally in science and just pushed it. And you kind of get to this thing, you know, like you always read these studies, right? You know, uh, this week, coffee is good for you. Next week, it's right. bad for you. You know, oh, wine is going to make you live longer. No, wine is terrible. Don't drink it. You know, and, and what are people going to do? Very naturally, they're going to say, I can't rely on any of this stuff because it's all contradictory. So I'll just throw my hands in the air and do whatever the hell I want, right? Because that's an easy way to do it. And if there was a clear path, people would probably do it more, right? But without the clear path, you know, people just say, yeah, I can't make sense of it. And it's beyond most people's experience to actually reach any of it. And the problem is vaccines get caught up in that. Um, and vaccines have been, you know, very clear public good, right? You know, many of us, many of us are alive because of vaccines. Um, and yet, if you look back in history, the anti-vax movement is not new. You know, the anti-vax movement has existed as long as vaccines have existed. So smallpox, that, ha- that was, you know, one of those diseases where people had like 10 children because seven of them were going to die of smallpox right? And then they invented a vaccine in like the 1700s, so a very long time ago. And of course, the vaccine was very popular. So everybody got the vaccine. And the word vaccine comes from bash, which is French for cow, uh, because cowpox was a disease that cows had, and cowpox prevented smallpox. So they basically invented people, sorry, injected people with, with cowpox, um, and that prevented smallpox. And for a generation, this is great, right? Everyone's like, oh, amazing. Now my, now my kids are not dying, like, you know, people are living, and you're seeing the effects. And then you go through a couple of generations, and people start to say, well, I haven't seen any of this smallpox for a while. Mm-hmm. And why are we injecting this cowpox? And they actually, in the 1800s, they had like, um, uh, like political cartoons, which had people as half human, half cow hybrids. Oh, jeez. Because, you know, you'll turn into a cow. Right? And that seems laughable now. And I'm sure the autism thing is going to seem laughable in 200 years mm-hmm. to, to understand it. But it's exactly the same thing. It's basically people have not seen these bad diseases and they're wondering why they have to do a, a thing that seems a little inconvenient. Um, and, and, of course, exactly what happened, happened, right? People stopped taking the vaccine and for a while it's fine and then the smallpox comes back and then it starts killing all the kids again and then people say, oh, I should get that vaccine again. And these cycles went on and it went on for 200 years, right? And it's back and forth and back and forth and eventually it kind of damped down and finally smallpox was eradicated but the way it was finally eradicated was they they sent helicopters into uh, the last few villages in the former Yugoslavia, and they just forced vaccinated whole villages. And people clearly said, we don't want this vaccine. And the, the World Health Organization said, too bad, you're getting wow. it. <laughs> and, and success. They eradicated smallpox from the planet. And this is an amazing achievement. It's one of history's biggest things that we've ever done as humans, right? And, you know, we trampled over some individual rights in doing so. And that was in the 70s. So... Could we do that now? Almost certainly not. Mm-hmm. Right. So we don't have that kind of power anymore. You know, we respect individual rights, which is a good thing most of the time, but sometimes there are necessary circumstances. And so, so I, I feel like, you know, this stuff gets very messy and the reality is we're going to, you know, a lot of people are going to die and then people are going to sort of say, Oh, we should vaccinate again. And the cycle is going to continue. And over time, probably the arc bends towards good things But a lot of people are going to suffer in the meantime, and it's kind of sad. But it's also, you know, I I think I take a bit more of a philosophical view as much as I'm, you know, actually actively trying to fight against it. Um, I am doing some work on trying to sort of, you know, see if we can can quantify anti-vaxxers and, you know, kind of figure some stuff out there. Um, But I'm also aware that this is how human
0: Mm -hmm. are. Yeah, I hadn't realized that there was such a reaction against the smallpox vaccine. So it it is a little bit reassuring Mm -hmm. to think that it's not new. (laughs) yeah we've
1: always sucked (laughs) sucked and we have always sucked so oh well oh (laughs) well
0: well since since that's such a cheery subject let's let's get into how you got to writing doctor who related things Uh yes
1: (laughs) yeah so it's quite quite a different hat that I wear when I I wear my writing hat Um, so uh, I would say if you trace it back though it all has the same root so so, I, I mean, I was always a big Doctor Who fan. And so in the 90s, when there was no TV show, there were books, and I was reading the books, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then the internet came along. And, and I mean, I, I'd written a few things for fanzines back, back in the day, but, you know, the fanzines had this issue of, like, well, you have to, you know, write your piece, whatever it is. You have no particular feedback on it. You, you put it in an envelope and you mail it away, and you hope that the editor likes it enough to include it in the, you know, 24 pages that they have, where you're competing against everybody else. And when you don't really know what you're doing, you know, the first couple of things you write are going to be pretty terrible, of course. And then you get rejected and then you think, oh, you know, well, that's not for me maybe, right? Instead of realizing maybe you're just learning your craft. And I had a couple of things published here and there, but it was, you know, they weren't that great and had a lot of rejections and so on. But then the internet came along and there's no space limitations. And I was like, oh, I can write any old thing <laughs> and put it online and it's fine. And of course I put up some things and some were good and some were bad, and, you know, some I cringe at or whatever. Um, and, one particular thing I was started to do was review the books. I started writing reviews and, and there was a bunch of people writing reviews and they thought, Oh yeah, I enjoy reading people's reviews. I'll write some too. I read a book. Let me just write about it. Here's what I liked about it. And I started with a few paragraphs and then it became longer and longer. Um, but you know, I would throw in jokes because you know, <laughs> I've seen people and after a while, and I would say after many years, people started to be like, man, your reviews are really funny and they're really sharp and they're really on point. And you, are, you're analyzing these novels with this, like, you know, amazing scalpel. I'm like, oh, am I? I'm just writing down what I think. And, you know, and I, then I realized, no, no, no. I have a math brain. My math brain is just taking the plot and saying, but the logic is not there. And da, da, da. And, and I would just be sort of, you know, pointing stuff out and doing it in a funny way. Um, and, and actually the authors started to come back and say, uh, okay, so you're kind of a scary reviewer <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, really? I'm, I'm a pussycat. It's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, but online, I guess I probably am. And, and it was really interesting because you started to sort of see the process and so on. Uh, and, and then because of that, I, I got a gig kind of writing for, for a print fanzine. Um, and that was kind of a, um, it was Enlightenment. It was a Canadian fanzine. Uh, and we had to write every other month. So it was, it was six issues a year. Um, I wrote for every single issue for 10 years. And um, you had to do it. And it was, you had to write within word count. And you had to write on an interesting topic. Um, and you have an editor who's going to reject you or, you know, cut your piece, you know, if it's, you know, to to ribbons, if if they don't like it or whatever, which all that stuff always happens, of course. Um, but after a while I, you know, basically became the star writer of this thing. And I was like, man, I'm good at this. And I I was like, I really got the hang of this. Like I really, and that was not my dream at all. My dream was to be a fiction writer. And, and at the same time I am sort of, you know, writing fiction, they had some fiction zines as well. And I was doing some fanfic here and there and, um, you know, and we sort of write some stuff and I was like, I can do it. But man, it's hard work, and and so then I'm um, you know fast forward many years, and I I met a publisher, um, and and he, it was a publisher that I had made fun of um, online, <laughs> and looking at me, he was like, "Wow, your stuff is really funny." And I was like. Oh, big of you to say and he's like no no he's like I don't kind of mind you know as long as you're fair it's fine and you're always fair and he's like man you know you kind of made fun of me but boy I laughed I was like oh well like, what a stand-up guy this yeah. is like because I'm a little saying oh I didn't mean to. <laughs> and, I was like, no, no. and then I said well do you take pictures can I pitch something to you and he said oh normally no but actually from you yeah because I've read your reviews online and I was thinking I never wrote one of those reviews to be any kind of pitch document mm-hmm. you know and a lot of you concerned because they were like oh what if you know big finish or someone finds my stuff online and I, I criticize them i better delete that or whatever and i was much more like no we need to not hold back we need to you know it's very important for us to to you know have the freedom to say you know to be critical if we need to and so on And just want to do it in a smart way um and so that very thing actually got me kind of my first gig um and originally i was trying to do fiction but and he sort of said well you know there's more of a market for non if you're into that and it was that pivotal moment where i went I'm so into that. I'm so good at that. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, there's a market for it. And I'm, I'm, you know, I have to say amazing at it. And fiction, I'm not amazing at. I'm, I'm only so-so. And I was like, oh, let me totally switch hats. And so then I was like, right, I'm going to be a nonfiction person. Um, and I think one of the things that I bring to it is, you know, it's not just dry and dusty kind of right. facts and figures, which a lot of nonfiction often is. It's like, you know, oh, let me, you know, provide an episode guide to a show or something. And it's just, you know, here's fact, here's figure, here's a cast list, you know, here's mm-hmm. a summary of the episode, you know like that's so boring. Like also with the internet, you have that stuff already. Like if if I want to know the, you know, who was in the latest episode, I'll Google that. Right. What you can't just Google necessarily is like, you know, amazing insights and kind of, you know, comedy stuff. And so I mean, you can, of course, but it's harder to find. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also you bring something in that way. And so for me, it's very much about like, what can I bring that's not found elsewhere? And and that's that's sort of turned into a whole thing. Um, and so my my co-author Graham Burke and I we were kind of you know on the same page. He was actually my editor for the fanzine, um, and so we kind of you know launched into a kind of the first the first book that we did together was a um, uh, it was a collection of fan articles kind of thing. Um, and I thought it was fantastic. I like he and I were both like wow we've well, got something really great here. And I still stand by that. I think it was absolutely amazing. Um, the problem is it had a boring title, a boring cover, <laughs> a boring cover, a boring back cover. So nobody ever opened that book. <laughs> and and so <laughs> and, and I know it, I, it's still it's still around occasionally. It's called Time Unincorporated. Um, and you see that people at conventions, even people who I know love my other books, and they sort of pick it up. Maybe they see my name on the cover. So they pick it up and they sort of look at it and kind of maybe like flick through and just put it down again. And I'm like, yeah, right. This, this book had no appeal and, you know, it doesn't matter what was inside. It right. was not a shame. it. Yeah. And and it was a great and humbling lesson for me. I was like, oh wow, we wrote our book and it sunk like a stone. And we did another one and it sunk like a stone. And the third one, that took off. <laughs> and so it was, it was kind of like, wow, that was a that was a steep learning curve. Um, but it also taught me a lot about you have to market your book mm-hmm. correctly not just leave it to the marketing people um, because they have, you know, some skills of course, but they don't always know what it is exactly about your book that's working. And sometimes they try and market it the wrong way and so on. And so we often build in now stuff that that makes it appealing. And so, you know, we kind of find, find the hook essentially.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I know one of, one of the books is a guide to classic who for people who might not venture in otherwise. And because I am such a classic who fangirl and, and Mm I, I try not to get frustrated with people who've never tried it, who write it off without looking at it. I find that very difficult. (laughs) Um, I'm curious to know how, you know, how has that book been received by the people who've read it? Have you actually managed to convert many people who otherwise are like, but it's grainy black and white and the monsters are made of bubble wrap and why would I watch this? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the
1: answer is actually, yeah, absolutely. We have converted people, people, and, and also people who've used our book to convert their friends um, uh, because it's not watch everything because there's too much of it. So we did it as the 50 Doctor Who stories to watch before you die. And we're kind of, it was the 50th anniversary. Some, some of, of course, the new series ones, but yeah, there's about uh, probably 35 odd sort of mm-hmm. classic series. And it runs from all eras and all doctors and so on. Um, and well, we tested this out in our editor and she was a new Doctor Who fan, but never seen a classic episode. And so she, like, you know, mainlined the entire sort of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> classic Doctor Who and kind of fast forward. Uh, because what we realised through writing this was we are writing a history of Doctor Who. We didn't realise we were doing it until we part way mm-hmm. were halfway through. We are like, oh, right. because we're taking, like, just kind of, you know, the cherries on top of Doctor Who, like, you're really seeing, like, this really cool cool show happening, and I remember watching the episodes myself going, like, you know, I watched, you know, you watch Unearthly Child and then it's the Daleks, then you skip to the Aztecs and I think then we jump to, like, the War Machines and then it's, kind of, you know, Tomb of the Cybermen and then, you know, you're, kind of, jumping across and I'm watching this going, like, Doctor was the greatest show ever, <laughs> like, this is I'm only watching the great ones it wasn't only super quality, because that's, that's kind of a bit boring too, so we threw in, like, you know some stuff to mix it up, we have, like, you know, The Leisure Hive and The Happiness Patrol and Frontios and things in there that, you know, we think are important to watch and it also gives you a flavour of Doctor Who, um, but you know, it's yeah, it's not sort of just Android Invasion or something where you just you know, okay, I'm just watching this because it's right. on and it's between two things, yeah. Um, and so our editor, you know, she sort of immersed herself in classic Who and kind of, you know, I, I think you know, she found the black and white era a little slow, uh, but once she got to the colour, she's like, oh my god, like you know, Spearhead from Space this is my new favourite story, and you know, and she was suddenly like, you know, really engaging in the process, and we sort of thought, okay, okay, this can work. And, <laughs> I've definitely done this with multiple people and, and, and sometimes people are, you know, they're not going to watch 50 of them, but they might watch a couple Mm. and at least it's it's in the guide as to, you know, what you might like to see and so on.
0: That's so cool. Cause I, I know, you know, people who are really, really resistant and, and I mean, it's their right to be resistant. They don't have to watch anything Mm -hmm. they don't want to watch, but I love the idea of, I don't know. I think I usually end up saying something like yes, the sets wobble and there's green bubble wrap and sometimes (laughs) there's a lot of filler and you wish it would go a little bit faster, but underneath it all, there tends to be a pretty good story.
1: Yeah. You know, a very funny thing happened recently because I was dating someone who was quite a bit younger. And so we watched New Doctor Who and she really liked it. And she's like, oh, this is great. And then she's like, can I see some classic here? And I was sort of like, okay, okay. I just need to warn you. Put <laughs> you know, all these writers in, right? You're like, okay. And then, so we, and she said, oh, I really like Cybermen. Like, you know, let's, let's see something with Cybermen. And she's like, and I kind of want to see, we're having debates about like how violent should the Doctor be? And so on. She's like, show me the most violent Doctor episode with Cyberman. I'm like, okay, well, the obvious choice is Attack of the Cybermen. But I feel like this is not a great choice. And so I kind of let, let it out. And she's like, okay, let's watch that one. I was like, this is a terrible idea. Why am I <laughs> showing this person? The as if, and she loved it. Wow. I was like, oh, that is not expected. And one of the things she particularly loved was she loved the practical effects. She's like, they build everything. She's like, I never see practical effects anymore. Like, you know, like really ever. Like she's like, I'm I grew up on CGI. Mm-hmm. Like that's what that's how special effects are. She's like, Oh my god, like, you know, that cyberman comes through the wall. It came through the wall. Like, you know, she was just totally taken by this. And so she was like, This is great, let's let's watch more and then she wanted to see the origin of the which the tenth planet. I'm like, I am violating every rule I've ever had. <laughs> Oh, black and white Doctor Who. It's a you know incomplete story. There's a regeneration at the end. is there a second story, or oh, you know, and again, she loved it. And so you know, and then we just sort of you know parted our way through Doctor Who, and we ended up sort of doing a kind of you know Philip Hinchcliffe years marathon where we just watched it all, and it was it was great. And so I was like, I can't believe this happened. Like this is you know every every dream I ever had come yeah. true. Um, yeah, and so so I find sort of you know the the old sort of thing of like you know the sets wobble and so on. I think if you're kind of you know of the generation who cringed watching that when you were growing up then yeah you need to warn people about it but i think you know if, if you're young, if you're a millennial and you're watching doctor who that's old you know it's old you don't ha- you don't have to like you know mm-hmm. <laughs> basically like, apologize for it because everything looks the same that's old and and you know it's not like oh this one is is bad because it's, you know but no it's all it's all of the same and so you know that's well that's part of the charm yeah
0: what, what's strange to me is that the ones where they've taken the old episodes and they've souped up the special effects because to me yeah, it's just yeah. like but They don't fit. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. There's ways to do that well and ways to do it badly. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think it was Earthshock where you you can, I have the DVD and you can, you can choose which effects you want. And, and I never, ever put the new ones on because they just look so incredibly out of place to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the clever things they did was Day of the Daleks. Because they got, you know, they went back to the, old, the original location, which is still there. Uh, and they got, you know, some of the old Daleks, whatever. And then they got the actual cameras. And so they got the, they found like oh. the old camera and, and they filmed with that. And it's like, so it, it integrates seamlessly because it just feels like it's a 1973 kind of, you know, production. And you're like, wow, there's a lot more Daleks and Ogrons in here. But otherwise,
0: it <laughs> looks like it would have, you know. <laughs> That's cool. I haven't seen that. I'll have to check it out. Mm-hmm. So what, what would you say is the most underrated classic Who story?
1: Oh, what a very good question. Um, (laughs) The most underrated. uh, Oh, wow. okay. Um, I would say maybe something like the Happiness Patrol. um, And I I know why it's underrated. (laughs) um, But I also think that is one of those stories where there's just so much to mine in there. Um, I I think, you know, the Seventh Doctor era is one of those ones where, um, you know, if you were there at the time, you either loved it or hated it. And I think sort of now people kind of have this very odd kind of relationship with it, Um, but I I I think it's an amazing era, and I think they were really kind of you know pushing themselves to try and make you know really interesting points. I mean the very fact that like when the script editor got hired and the producer said you know so what do you want to do with Doctor Who and he said bring down the government. said in any other time like that is amazing and the happiness patrol is kind of like you know the time when they really actively trying to they're trying to do mm-hmm. that and they're like yep no, we're not not hiding this at all we're really actually trying to do this and you know make this you know legal commentary and so on um, and so i mean you know i mean as a story of course it's, it's got its flaws and sometimes very obvious flaws but also kind of makes it what it is as well um but there, there are, I mean, I would say also great many underrated Doctor Who stories all over the map. Uh, I mean, something like The Seeds of Doom is not underrated in many ways. People would say, oh, of course, that's like a mm-hmm. classic. But it's not a classic people think about, right? It's just like, True. oh, yeah, that's one of those maker ones that's kind of good, right? And you watch it and you're like, this is not just good. This is astonishing. This is an absolutely amazing piece of television that, you know, you sort of feel like, how, how have I not appreciated this before? Um, and then you realize it's because everything around it also feels just as amazing. And so it kind of just sits there in this beautiful run of quality and you're like, wow, we were so lucky to get mm-hmm. this. <laughs> and so, hmm.
0: Yeah. That one was one that, I mean, I didn't start watching till I was probably about 14, I would guess, 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, that was an, one that I saw pretty early on, along along with the Pyramids of Mars, which I love, but which gave me nightmares at the time. And I think the Seeds of Doom was not far behind it. <laughs> so you know, I love it, but I also there, there's still that little part of me that's kind of like, oh yeah, that monster. Ooh, <laughs> I don't need to see that. I, actually, no. I think the uh, the human villain in that one was scarier than the monster.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's, he's he was funny. very very creepy. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, so do you have a favorite?
1: Ah, uh, so I, I probably don't have a single favorite. I mean, I have so many right. favorites. It's kind of an unfair <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of—I guess my go-to answer is probably *Remembrance of the Daleks*. Okay, um, that's a good one. I just think that—that that is, you know, it, it kind of deconstructs Doctor Who in this really amazing way. It kind of, it like takes all the kind of like touchstones of Doctor. It's like, you know, it's a doctor, he's this guy in a scarf fighting Daleks and there's units, you know, basically. And there's, you know, it's on earth and, you know, there's kind of all this stuff. And yet, you know, there's Davros and, and and everything's kind of in there, but it, it, what it does with it is astonishing. And it really kind of pulls apart Doctor Who to kind of see what it is and how it works. And it kind of takes it apart and then it puts it back together and says, yeah, yeah, we can actually do something with this. Um, And the fact that you basically have the Doctor being called out for you know being you know, committing genocide and stuff like that, and he's kind of like, "Yeah, yeah, I do that." And you know, and watch me again. I'll do this right now. And you know, it's it's this is this is amazing to me. Um, you know, and he's he's this man who like you know won't pick up a gun, and yet he'll talk his dialect to death. Yeah, you know, and, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. I I find the whole you know won't pick up a gun, but
1: yeah.
0: element of that character really fascinating.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And Indeed. and I also you know kind of going back to what you said a while ago, you know, I, about three years ago, I made a list of just on a whim of all the things I learned from Dr. Who, and I expected it to be this list of silly things like reverse the polarity and stuff like that. Um, And then I realized that, I guess it was 2016, so not quite not quite three years yeah. ago, but it, it was very, very close to the 53rd anniversary. So I thought, okay, I'll see if I can come up with 53 things. Well, you run right. out of the silly things pretty quickly when, mm-hmm. when you try to do that. And I ended up discovering just how much that show made me who I am and shaped you know, how I see the world and, and that kind of thing. So I find it kind of comforting to know that I'm not the only one who falls into that category, mm-hmm. even though it took me a long time to figure it out.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah,
0: so I, I love that, you know, Legopolis was was a thing for you. and
1: Oh, absolutely key. Yeah, <laughs> Just, you know, I think I need to watch yeah. that
0: again. I missed the <laughs> the showing the other week in the theater, so. but Yeah, yeah, I missed it too because I was traveling. And yes, I'm very sad. I missed yeah, <laughs> but I, you know, yeah, modeling the universe. Why uh-huh. not? What happens when the model breaks down? Oops.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, <thanks. laughs> lots and lots of entropy. Very,
0: very much. <laughs> So, well, this has been a whole lot of fun. I'm really glad we talked. Yes, this has been excellent. Thank, Thank you. you. And, you know, keep up the excellent zombie modeling, <laughs> among other <laughs> things. You're clearly out, you know, doing your own doctor thing in your own way, which is awesome. Yes. <laughs> so thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, you very welcome.
0: Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you have a whole new perspective on the art and science of mathematics, and maybe even the usefulness of zombies. Many thanks to Robert Smith for joining me. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade.